Hello and welcome. You're listening to Big Crone Energy. I'm your host, Karina Blackheart, the crone herself. Welcome to the Big Crone Energy Podcast. This is Karina Blackheart, and I'm your host. I'm here today with Allie Valkyrie, who um, we know her in the States as uh, the proprietor of Practical Rabbit, but now she is the proprietor of Say it. <laughs> or in English, two squirrels ceramics. Two squirrels ceramics. Um, Allie and I have known each other for 20 years. We worked together um, for, I don't know, seven years or five to seven years um, with her as my student. Um, and, uh, and we've been friends ever since dear friends ever since. Um, so before we get started with my interview with Allie, there's a couple things that I want to make sure that you hear about, about what's happening at the Crone herself and the Crone's Marketplace online. Um, first of all, we're starting this month in July, uh, Dark Moon Rituals of Release. These happen online in a private space. Um, this is These rituals are... Um, happening not on the dark moon, but just right before it. Well, it's still dark, and some and anyone decides that they're going to call that dark moon a new moon. So it's still waning, um, and we use that time of the lunar cycle to release, to let go of what's in our way, what's obstructing us, what's holding us back, what's keeping us small. Um, beautiful ritual that I've created for this work, and that's going to be happening monthly. You can sign up at thecroneherself.com. Um, I should also let you know that the monthly rituals are a certain fee. They're $45 per person. It's a 90-minute ritual. But if you join the conspiracy of crones, um, which is my online membership program, you get those rituals included in your membership along with a bunch of other great stuff like oracle readings and uh, transmissions from the ancient crones, blog posts that nobody else sees, and some other new stuff coming on board really soon. So joining the conspiracy is your better bet if you want to do rituals with the crone herself. In the shop coming soon, Allie's work will be there very soon. She's sending me a box. I also have bigger wheel-thrown ceramics coming from, from another friend. I have oils coming soon from another friend at Alchemia Perfumes. And um, I just picked out some great bath products, um, fashion accessories, just really beautiful hand-chosen stuff that I love that I think that you'll love too. So. Um, if you go to my website, thecroneherself.com, please click on the shop and see what's happening there. We're growing it slowly. It tends to feel more like a pop-up shop, like I buy a little bit of stuff and then it's all gone, right? And then I buy a little more stuff and it's all gone. So if I tell you that there's something in the shop and you see that online, you should go find out about it right away because things don't tend to stick around too long. Okay, I think that that's everything that I had on my list I wanted to tell you about today. So, Allie Valkyrie, hi. 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 
So we were just talking. We were Allie and I were just trying to figure out how long we've known each other when when she started working with me, um, training with me in the in the the witchcraft tradition that I used to teach. And we figured out that it's like 19 years that we've known each other. It seems like yesterday, mm-hmm. and it seems like so long ago that I can't quite I couldn't quite remember like when was that? Where was I living? What was happening? And it's not yeah. corresponding with certain thing, other things in my life that were just kind of nailed together. I wouldn't have remembered either. I mean, I'm kind of like you. I, I divide my life by where I was living at the time and, like, what yeah. stressful is happening. <laughs> and so I can remember yeah. where I was living and what thing was traumatizing me when I, I met you when I first started communicating with you. So yeah, that's really the only way I knew. I was like, yeah, I was in, I was in fashion school, and, oh, that was not a good idea. Um. <laughs> yeah, I placed things long ago based upon where I was living, too. What, I, what I've lost over the years, though, is what year that was. So it's like that's where I was living, but I still don't know what year it was or how old my kids were or how old I was. You know, that's what happens when you move and you move and you move and you move and you move. But I lose, I lose track of what the actual year was. So thank you for remembering. I'm like, I don't know, was that 2005? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So now you're living in France? Western France in Brittany, um, in France to be precise, which is the, the capital of the region of Brittany, um, which is like the western, it's basically the peninsula that fucks up the hexagon. You know, France, they call the hexagons. It kind of looks like one. It's almost six-sided, um, except that there's like this, this bump sticking out of the western, the northwestern end, um, and that's, that's where I live. Um, and it's, there's actually, there's, there's a double layer to the idea of the peninsula that fucks up the hexagon, because this is also a separatist region that's been fighting with the state for hundreds of years. So it's, it fucks up both the physical hexagon, but it's also, you know, we're kind of the, the stick that's been poking at Paris since the Middle Ages without much um, pause. So, yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about how that is or isn't like... Um, What's ha- what you know? What's been going on in England since uh, in the UK since the Middle Ages, or what's been going on on, on this continent here um, in the Americas since colonization? Now, that has to do with colonization, doesn't it? Yes, um, this was at one point. I mean, like so much of Europe. You know, one thing I find really interesting, having been born and raised in the United States, is you know we think of Europe as being much older than us, and we and European countries being much older. And they are on one level in terms of like the continuity of our ancestors having lived there. And yet the modern nation states as we know of them today, many of them are actually not a whole lot older than the U.S. and a lot of them are actually much younger. Um, I always point, you know, when people say they're Italian, I ask them, you know, when, when they're relatives got there and if they tell me it's before the 1880s I laugh I'm like then they wouldn't have seen themselves as Italian they were Calabrian or Sicilian or Roman but Italy didn't exist until the 1880s Germany didn't exist until right around the the same time Um, France as we know it is is somewhat older but France as we know it today with all the parts that are 
connected to it um, presently is is not something that's that's two thousand years old. And the region where I live, um, Brittany, Brittany was an independent, like a duchy, you know, who, who the idea of nation states didn't really exist in the Middle Ages, but it was his own. It was its own independent kingdom until 1532 and did not join France willingly. Joined France under a whole lot of complicated political pressures and situations that I'm not going to go into right now because that in itself is a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> suffice to say, um, it, it, it's the you know people here not on the same exact kind of level, uh, not in the same severity for much of the time, but, you know, people here have been fighting colonization as long as the Native population in the U.S. has been fighting colonization. Those two things actually happened around the same time. Um, and mm-hmm. in certain ways, in terms of uh, geopolitics, for, for similar reasons when it came to, you know, kingdoms trying to grab power. Uh, you know, France, they weren't the explorers. The, the French didn't go over to the Americas. The French land grabbed from within, um, from on the continent. Mm. And the little islands outside, you know, France took islands in the Caribbean. France took, you know, what, what now we know is Martinique. France took much of Africa. Uh, while the Portuguese um, and the Dutch, they're the ones, and later the English, and then later the French went over to the Americas. So, you know, the region I live in, you know, and again, it, it's tricky because you know, I don't want to put it on, you know, what happened to folks here is, is absolutely not on the same level of severity um, in terms of under genocide as what happened to, and it's still happening to Native Americans. And to be clear, it's still happening to folks here, many would argue. Um, but there, there has definitely, this is seen by at least a, a certain percent, a certain portion of the population here as a, a still colonized region that's been colonized for, for over 500 years now. And, you know, we have, many would say a separatist movement. I would say we actually have several different separatist movements that operate kind of on a spectrum of severity from wanting to be a um, utterly completely different country in itself to just wanting much more autonomy. And so those political tensions, and again, that, you know, that subject in itself could also be an old, a complete other podcast. Uh, <laughs> but needless to say, you know, this is France legally, but a lot of people here would not, they would consider themselves Breton first and French second. And then you have a minority that would say that they're not French at all. So, yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. I, I love your grasp of... Um your love of and your grasp of historical context. Um, I feel like one of the gifts that you give when you talk to people about history is it gives us a context to put ourselves in rather than just the moment that we're in, right? We tend to be in America, right? in the United States, we tend to be very, like, in the moment, what, what's happening today, right? And, and we can get so sort of overwhelmed um, by the 24-hour news of what's happening in today. And not to say that it's not overwhelming, right? But when you put it in the long arc of time, of history, um, we see that where we are now, we've been, we in the United States have been right here before. 
Um, Rachel Maddow is doing a great podcast right now called, um, oh, God, now I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it. I don't remember the name, but I know Deja, what it is. Yeah, it's about it, it's like. It's called Deja News. Yeah, and, Deja yeah. News. So she's, she's looking at, like, periods in, in U.S. history um, where we've come so close to becoming fascist, um, to being overrun by an autocrat, um, and, um, and all the things, all the crazy things that are happening in our, um, our, our Congress right now and in the Supreme Court right now, and just sort of like putting it in context by telling stories about a different time, right, where we faced this before and, um, you know, by the skin of our teeth then we're able to hold on to quote-unquote democracy, you know, what we think of as democracy. Um, It's so interesting, you know, when I saw you just a few weeks ago um, in Germany, our friend Margaret said the United States is a third-world country, a, a failed democracy, and it literally just, like, took my breath away, right? Um, took my breath away to hear someone um, who's not me, right, <laughs> and someone who's not from here, right, um, say, that, say those sentences with such clarity and clarity of mind, right? I think here in the States we're, we're so confused right now Mm-hmm. about where we are and where we're going and what has happened and what is happening and could happen. Um, and we still have uh, that sense of American exceptionalism, right? Like we're the, we're the best in the world. Although I think in the last, you know, since 2016, um, we've really, really started to take a look at you know, well, really, how are we compared to other countries in the world, right? And when I, when I questioned Margaret about it, she went down the list and said, "You don't have health care. You don't have free higher. You don't have free health care. You don't have free higher education. You don't have a real safety net for your people. You don't have adequate trip transportation." You know, and just went, kept going, right? And I was like, "Yep, yep, 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 yep. True, true." True, true, true. Um, so it, it's interesting times <laughs> that we're living in. You know, something I would point out, again, you know, context and kind of parallel context, right? You know, it's interesting for me as an American living over here because I see what Margaret sees. And I wouldn't necessarily see it as clearly if I had never moved over here. Just for those listening, I've lived in France for going on six and a half years now. And, you know, what you just said before is very important, being that you know, the United States has been through these cycles, but has always gotten by it, just always gotten out of it through the skin of its teeth. You know, you have a 200-plus-year-old democracy. You have one of the oldest, arguably the oldest, running democracies without a, a cut in the world. And that's something that most Americans point out as a source of pride. Uh, I would argue, looking from over here, that's not actually a good thing. Thing. And that's part of why everything is failing right now, because you're running on a 225-plus-year-old set of rules and ideas that have never really been, I mean, they, they've been altered slightly here and there, 
Um, but there, there was never a point where someone said, hey, you know, this isn't working anymore. You know, uh, look at France's apparel. The French Revolution and the American Revolution were a decade apart. Yet France's, we're on our fifth republic and our fifth constitution, and we had two monarchies in between there. So we have not had a 225-year run without a break of democracy. People here understand how fragile it is, and they understand what makes it fall. And whereas America has always gotten by by the skin of its teeth and always kind of righted itself at the last moment and retained democracy, at least democracy for a certain group of people. But again, that's a whole other podcast, right? Um, over yeah. here, you know, where Margaret's coming from as someone growing up in Germany and me has was, lived in France and immersed myself in history long enough, we know what it looks like when it fails. And we know what it looks like when it's about to fail. And we know why it fails. And so that's why people over here are looking at, you know, the idea that the United States is a failed state is not a politically controversial idea over here. Both the left and the right and the center, we all see that equally. Uh, people will give different reasons for it. You know, the right would, would, would blame it, you know, similar to Americans would blame it on, on immigrants, would blame it on globalization, would blame it on whatever. Um, you know, the left would blame it more on a lack of a social safety net. And, you know, there are a few voices on the American left that have said what I, you know, the problem is that you're, you know, look and look at your founding fathers, look who wrote your constitution. Uh, French constitution was written in 1958. And even now we have, we have debates about whether it should be thrown out and, and restarted. Actually, our, you know, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is, you know, they call him the French Bernie Sanders, usually in American press, um, you know, he runs for president. He always basically comes in third. Uh, but his argument, you know, the, one of the, the, the foundations of his platform is a sixth republic, is a new constitution. Because despite ours only being from 1958, he feels that it's, there's too many flaws and it's too dysfunctional. And I will, you know, as an American, that cracks me up because, yeah, don't get me wrong, France has its dysfunctions. All democracies have its dysfunctions. But you know, France dysfunction versus American dysfunction is kind of like, you know, the, the problems that will come up with the 2016 Prius versus the problems that will come up from like a 1957 Chevy, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> the level of what's going to go wrong at any given moment, uh, France has nothing on the U.S. And yet from the perspective here, we need to fix this. And one of the reasons we need to fix this is because people understand what pushes us toward fascism because here it actually happened. And so, you know, in the U.S., I mean, there was even a book written, right, called, like, It Can't Happen Here. And I mm -hmm. think that's, well, people are just waking up to the idea that maybe it can. And here we know, we've we learned, everyone here collectively learned the hard way. Um, you know, Germany and France more so than any other countries, you know, being the occupier and being the most occupied next door mm -hmm. neighbor. Uh, we know how, how it can happen here, and we know what it does, and we know how many generations it takes to build, and we know how long that inter intergenerational trauma lasts. And so, yeah, you know, we're looking over there like, ooh, you know, like, read, read, not just don't read your history, read our history. Like, and, you know, and you hear that, you know, Rachel Maddow is one of them. Um, you know, there's many people uh, in the progressive wing of the United States that, that points to both Trump, but also just the general political tendencies going on right now. I would especially highlight what's, you know, the attacks on the LGBT community right now uh, and compares mm -hmm. that to 1930s Germany. 
and they're absolutely right. Like it's you are you are living through our past history, and it's never happened right. there. And we can't we won't learn from your history because we're banning our own history from being taught in schools. And far too many people think here think that our history doesn't matter because America's number one, and because it can't happen there. So yeah, you're, you're banning your history. You're not very concerned about our history. And so right. in, because of those two things, you're becoming that history. And it's terrifying to watch. And at the same time, it's also happening here. You know, fascism is a global tendency. It was, it was you know, kind of seeing that from afar years ago that, that made me wake up one day and said, I'm getting the fuck out um, when mm-hmm. it comes to the U.S. You know, it's, it's, it's happening here. It's happening in England. It's happening all over Eastern Europe. It's happening in Italy. Um, it's rising again in Germany. Yep. But at least here, there's more people who know what it looks like and who knows what it smells like and are willing to put their bodies on the line to stop it. Right. And so putting your bodies on the line is another topic that I wanted to talk about with you because, you know, we're losing our civil rights here. We're losing our constitutional rights here to bodily autonomy. to free speech, right? It's only free speech if the right says that they want to say it. Um, you know, um, ra- raising uh, our retirement age to 70 and making it so that you cannot access your retirement, your Social Security, until you're 70. So if you decide to retire early, you're on your own, right? Um, and all of the decisions that just came out of the Supreme Court last week. And I'm astounded every time, Allie, that we are not out in the streets. You know? I'm astounded every time. And I think that here in the States we have a tendency to wait until someone organizes, you know, uh, a march right, which is not the same thing as hearing the news and walking out your front door into the streets, right? Right. Um, The marches that we have here in the States, for the most part, not all of them, certainly not Black Lives Matter, certainly not Occupy Wall Street, right, Um, which is the last time we had a, a movement of protest, right, the kinds of marches that people are waiting for someone else to organize, those are corporately funded marches, right? (laughs) Those are the ones where you have, you know, um, Jane Fonda comes to talk and Lily Tomlin comes to talk and, you know, um, all the women who remember before Roe v. Wade, right, come to talk, and then the people from Planned Parenthood come to talk, and a few young younger people. But those people are all paid for coming to talk to the audience, right? And the audience, you know, there's police and they have permits and all of that. It's a really different situation than, you know, Macron saying we're going to raise the retirement age and people hit the street for weeks, you know, you know, in cities all over the country, people hit the streets for weeks, burning stuff down. And I just don't know, Allie, if we will ever in the States stand up and say no. Or if if we're... When it comes 
to, you know, majority community. You know, I will say, you know, what happens here does happen there. But as you said, something like Black, Black Lives Matter, right? You know, when Ferguson happened, you know, George Floyd, you, those folks didn't wait for someone to organize. They went out immediately. They went out in the streets. Um, I would say, you know, the way that, that black communities and, and to a lesser extent minority communities as a whole operate in the United States, that's kind of how everyone operates here. They don't, they don't wait for a leader. Um, they also, you know, also hear, you know, one thing I find really fascinating, one of many things I find fascinating about, and this goes back to what you were saying before about not knowing your history, right, is how much French people know about the American labor movement. Because it's the American labor movement that inspired the French labor movement. And it's the French labor movement that is arguably the most well-known labor movement in the world right now and has probably been since World War II, you know. Mm-hmm. May, May 1st, the fact that May 1st is celebrated in, you know, d- uh, dozens, well over 100 countries over the world, but not the United States. You know, May, May 1st is, is, is acknowledging the Haymarket tragedy, <laughs> whereas ask the average American what the Haymarket tragedy was, and generally speaking, they're not going to be able to tell you much about it, whereas here, everybody can at least give you three sentences on what that was. They may not have details. Mm-hmm but they know what it was. You know, May 1st is the, for example, in the public transit system in my city, May 1st is the only day of the year it shut down. It operates on Christmas. It operates on New Year's. It operates on Easter. It operates on, you know, what people there will call Bastille Day, which is not really what it's called, but, you know, that's how Americans will know it. That's the word I'll use. Um, The only day it doesn't operate is May 1st because that day is seen as sacred. That's the day you don't work. That's the day it's illegal to make your employees work unless they work in a hospital or food service or hospitality. Yep. <laughs> and so, you know, we here in France know American history better than Americans know American history. And here in France, they know that if you shut shit down and burn shit down and scare the shit out of the government, and if, if it's, People, you know, who I, I, would, I would put in the category of people with privilege doing it, then the government eventually will have to respond. And they can't respond, at least over there they can't, you know. One, one thing that's interesting over here that I think most Americans don't understand is, you know, to hear privilege only protects you so much in, in front of the police. Um, there, on the other hand, you know, with upper middle class white people, you know, the pussy hat crowd, when out there day in and day out, the, the police aren't going to mow you down because that's, that's, that's their wives and girlfriends and neighbors and friends of their wives and girlfriends and neighbors and people who, who teach their children at school. And part of the, the, one of the major reasons the American institutions are able to stand as they stand is because there's this mythos around serving and protecting and the police being your friend. And they can't be your friend if they shoot your teacher with rubber bullets, you know, <laughs> and that's what's right. really frustrating. Or, or hose you down with cannons. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the degree to which, you know, the, the privileged classes there do have power to fucking put a stop to I me. Mean, the fact that Florida is not burning down right now, because the thing is Florida is not a red state. Florida is a deeply gerrymandered state. Florida was considered an up for grab state until the 2000 election. And everyone seems to have forgotten this. 
you have, sure, you know, DeSantis won the election, but that doesn't mean the majority of people voted for DeSantis. That means the majority of people who, A, had the right to vote, B, had the access to vote, and C, gave enough of a shit to vote, voted for DeSantis. That's not 60% of Florida. That's 60% of half of Florida. And right. so the fact that Florida is not burning down, the fact that Washington, D.C. is not burning down, the fact that the Supreme Court feels safe walking home at night and then going back to work in the morning. As someone who watched, you know, I mean, we, we don't have a, a, a city center police station right now because it burned down three months ago and they have yet to rebuild it. It's actually a, it's a really famous Instagram selfie spot right now. People <laughs> just uh-huh. take a selfie in front of the burned out police station because they, they think it's cool. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm not really going to argue with them. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. symbolically, I, I just I look at those differences. And, you know, the, they burned down the police stations here over the threat of losing rights that Americans couldn't even, you know, I mean, you're talking about, you know, Social Security and retirement. Said, but, you know, there's no there isn't even a guaranteed pension system in the United States. United States no. is full of a media that has feel-good stories about this person's been working at Walmart for 52 years or whatever, and look, they're retiring finally at 93 because someone started a GoFundMe. We don't have that here. <laughs> and that's yeah, GoFundMe stories are, are not feel-good stories. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and the fact that they're considered as such, and the fact that, that, that the idea of starting a GoFundMe so a 93-year-old can retire is somewhat normalized there. The fact that nobody thinks twice about the fact that your Walmart greeter can't stand up straight in the first place. Uh, the reason that our police station burned down is because people here feel very strongly that over the age of 64, nobody should have to be working unless they actually want to, which is an idea that I think Americans can't even conceive of. So yeah, you know, here people will engage in violent protest over what, you know, as someone with a foot in each country, I would say would be considered a minor shrug-off issue in the United States. Whereas, meanwhile, yeah, I mean, you, you all have lost more rights in, in the past three years. I, I can't even count anymore. No. And, you know, things are just kind of, your, your, your lobster's in the pot and the water's heating up. And I, I don't know what to do about that because I don't see, you know, I see what you see. You know, everyone's waiting for a, a go-ahead. But even then, with a go-ahead, you know, they're going to do, as you say, it's going to be the permitted marches. It's going to be, you know, let's make sure that, oh, look, there's the police that are going to escort us. Uh, People are just partially too afraid, but partially have just been so deeply conditioned not to engage in the level of protest that here is pretty normalized. Right. Um, And frankly, is needed. And the reason it's normalized and the reason it's needed is because people know it works and it changes things. And at least if it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change. I mean, you know, we lost the retirement fight, for example. But the government's kind of, you know, scared shitless right now. So even when it doesn't work, as in we don't win, it, it shifts the power balance. It puts them on edge. Whereas over the, you know, here the government fears the people. There they don't. And no, no, we had an incident a few months ago in Tennessee. I don't know if you're aware of, but there was a protest. There was a another mass shooting at another school, which um, in Tennessee, 
and um, there was a protest outside of the state capitol, um, and that moved into the House, right? Um, and some of the representatives in the House joined the protesters. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant young, young black men and a, a white woman who's probably in her 40s joined the protesters. And the, um, they were banned, right? Like, I don't, I don't remember the right word for it, but they were um, shut yeah. down and, and told, you know, yeah, um, for starting a riot right in the house of representatives and here here were the people the people came to the house of representatives where they're supposed to be represented right to speak aloud their concerns and not only were they removed but the three representatives who were with the crowd were also removed from the capitol and really had to fight to, to keep their jobs and be able to go back to work. Um, and I think the only reason that they were able to keep it is that the, um, the state court said, you're leaving the people without representation, mm-hmm. right? One of them, I think, has to ha- they're holding a special election to see if they can replace him. Um, it was so interesting to me, these these brilliant young men. They were incredible orators. And, you know, within 24 hours, Kamala Harris was down there meeting with them. Within a week, they had an invitation to the White House, right? And I thought, oh, God, oh, God, please don't get absorbed by the system. Please don't get absorbed by the system. And was actually, like, really, really, really relieved because they were they were on an interview um, with a, with a news station and they said we will not be absorbed by the system we are here to fight the system we're in the system fighting the system and i was like phew they didn't promise them a presidency or a governorship or some other thing or maybe they did try to promise them and, the, and these guys said no we know what we know what we're doing and we're going to keep doing it um but i think that in america we really rely upon People like that, right? Like somebody will fix it, right? Or it'll go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will fix it. But our Supreme Court is compromised, mm-hmm. right? And we'll I mean, be it's been so compromised for decades. For decades. For decades, right? Um, so they're being forced now to um, set up some ethics rules, right? Not like ethical suggestions, but ethics rules for themselves um, and have, you know, some committee who will oversee the ethics of the Supreme Court justices, which we've, we've never had, right? They're, they've really always been able to just do whatever they want um, because they're the high, highest judges in the land. Um, anyway oversight from within the system. I mean, how well does that work? I mean, look at the police who police the police, right? That... Right. Right. And, and it's really the justices who, who police the justices, right? And when they were in trouble a couple decades ago, I think it was Clarence Thomas was in trouble for, you know, 
some money that he took from someone or gifts or something. Um, and so the response to that was not to refuse gifts and money, but to just stop reporting it, right? Um, and no one in the Supreme Court said, no, no, Clarence, you have to, right? And he's not the only one, and I, I hate to, you know, it, it's touchy here, like whether we can talk about Clarence Thomas <laughs> or not um, because, he's, because he's a black man, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a different level of just where, where we are as a country, right? Um, and so it's, I've been told to stay in my lane around that. So I will stay in my lane around it. Um, so I want to sort of wind this around to here we are on the Big Crone Energy podcast, right, talking about the political state of the United States, um, comparing it to France. And um, in case my listeners are confused, right, part of, not part of, the reason that I am doing Big Crone Energy, the crone herself, is so that I can have all of my parts, right, so that I don't have to not talk about politics with people who are spiritual. And I don't have to be quiet about my spirituality with people who are political. I want, at this age, at this ripe old age in my life, I want to be a whole person. And I'm a public-facing person. And so I think that these conversations are super important um, to, to be having, to continue to have, like we can't just live with our heads in our spiritual practice and not look up at what is happening around us in the world and how it impacts us and people that we love. Um, and I know, Allie, that you have, you know, put your neck out there <laughs> on, on, um, for, for a long time, right, and really sort of, uh, you know, it, there have been times when you've been attacked. There have been times when you've been shut down. You've been called all kinds of names, and people have tried to undermine your businesses. And um, you know, from the from the pagan community, right, um, who don't want you to talk about these things. Um, and so, I wonder if you would talk about that, like not mentioning names, but just sort of like what you were up against as a person who's trying to be a whole person, right? I can be political and spiritual. They are not separate, right? That idea of, you know, church and state, right, I think is where the idea comes from that our spirituality is not touched by politics and our politics shouldn't be touched by our spiritual ideas, ideals, and practices. And yet, my spirituality informs my politics, and my politics inform my spirituality. It's a circle, you know, not separate entities that can't coexist in a body, in a community. Um, so I'm wondering if you feel like talking about any of that. And if not, you, we don't have to talk about it. Uh, well, you know, uh, you talk about, like, 
church and state and the separation of church and state. You know, I, I think about that a lot because, you know, as you, as you say, you can't separate the two. And, and frankly, the dominant uh, religious powers, the United States, can't separate the two in their own personal practices either. Um, right. For the reasons we have, you have theoretically church-state separation. I would argue that the, the American version of, of church-state separation, even before what's happening now, has always been relatively weak. But the reason for that was the understanding that the dominant religion, that the people who hold power, that if they had the permission, the ability to to inflict their religious beliefs on the state, it would become a theocracy. And, you know, you look back to the, you know, the, what distinguished colonial era America in terms of, of, of cementing that idea, but also what Americans, what those who became American settlers were both fleeing from in Europe and also created on their own behalf historically in the United States. You know, Europe being, being the, the land of, of kings, the land of kingdoms that was, was first under the, the roof of one religion and then dealt with hundreds and years of wars over a split in the Christian church. And, you know, within all the, the complications of that split, you know, you look at, for example, I, you know, I love the way that the, the myth of the pilgrims have been whitewashed, right? The idea of this group of people who are fleeing religious persecution and so they came to America. No, no, no. They weren't fleeing religious persecution. They, they were allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted in Holland what, in terms of practicing their beliefs. What they wanted was the ability to inflict their beliefs on other people. What they wanted was the same power that the King of England had because they did have to flee England. In England, their beliefs weren't accepted because their beliefs were in conflict with the Anglican, Anglican Church. They fled to Holland. They had their freedom of religion in Holland, but they wanted, they wanted to be able to wield power. So they literally came and formed a new England, an England in their own creation. And when you look at the history of the first hundred years of the settlers, they were a horrifying religious theocracy that at one point banned Christmas for being too fun. They were terrifying, and they are also the foundation yep. of what America was built on. So when we talk about church and state, when we talk about that idea and then kind of transfer it on to paganism and or minority religions and or witchcraft and use that idea of church and state as a reason why we can't be political, that's pulling an idea completely out of fucking context. Because when you are a tiny little minority religion, first of all, your existence is inherently political because you're a tiny little minority religion living in a country with a majority religion that over and over and over again over, over the course of, of centuries has wanted to, new to not exist and has gone through various cycles, some very severe, of making sure you're not allowed to exist. And so, you know, our existence and the fact that we are allowed to exist is in itself inherently political. You know, you think the evangelical Christians are going to stop at an LGBT community? No way. <laughs> no. Just wait. And all you have to do is you look at the way that evangelical American groups have influenced the idea of, you know, the, the 
when you, you hear about these horrible uh, stories coming out of, of African countries, for example, of witches being killed and burned, where do those ideas come from? Evangelical Protestant churches. So they're doing it already elsewhere. It's only a matter of time before it comes home. So the idea that we cannot be inherently political, that we shouldn't be inherently political, I'm sorry. Just that what we believe, what we believe makes us inherently political. I'm, I'm not mixing politics and spirituality. The fact that I believe what I believe puts me in a specific political position. And I have always been completely stunned at the, the and you know, privilege is a part of it, you know, going back to that, the vast majority of folks in the pagan, witch, magical, occult, whatever you're going to call them, communities who insist that we have to keep politics and religion separate are folks that really aren't all that concerned, you know, they're, they're folks that can afford to be apolitical, even if they practice witchcraft, because they still live the kind of lives where they can keep that underneath well enough and still function as they want to function and still have all their privileges and not have to worry about it. But for so many in our communities, that's just not an option, especially if you have other marginalizations. Um, you know, I think about, you know, what you were just saying as to why you, you started The Crone Herself reminds me of why we started, why uh, Reed and I started Gods and Radicals some years back. It was the same idea. It was this, you know, being leftist, anarchist-leaning political types. The idea that we were both getting, you know, we were getting resistance from the spiritual community about our politics and we were getting resistance from our leftist communities about the fact that, that we were spiritual. Um, you know, one mm -hmm. of the many graphic designs I make that has always been the most popular over the years is a shirt that says, many gods, no masters. And that was a poke at anarchists who scream, right. no gods, no masters. And that idea of no gods, no masters was, was a boundary that you just weren't allowed to cross. And, you know, I wasn't going to cross it with a, you know, Christian God in the sky type figure. But as a, as a polytheist and as an animist, I was just like, no, actually, there's plenty of us out here that, that believe, you know, we're, we're not, again, we're not believing in that oppressive, let's kill gay people, sky god. Um, but there are plenty of people in leftist communities who subscribe to alternative spiritualities, and we need to make room for that. And there's plenty, you know, and that there are, again, to me, you know, any witch worth their salt is political and if they're not being political then they just they're not doing much they're they're circle jerking i i don't know what, what <laughs> like what what are you doing with whatever you're doing if you're apolitical you're, you're either just making really beautiful things for instagram or you're like ripping people off as as one of those white lady life coach types like i don't even know anymore because there's just too much of it and I've just had to, like, step away and step back and step back over the years because, for me, it's just become too overwhelming and it makes me sick. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have paid my – I have paid the price countless, countless, countless times, um, mostly over the past decade because it was about a decade ago that I think I, you know, really put myself out there. But, but for me personally, you know, the ideas that ended up birthing Gods and Radicals in, what, 2015? You know, those ideas were planted 10 years before when I was a young witchy anarchist in New York City that, you know, was yep. really sick of not being able to talk about my witchiness in anarchist circles. 
So I was just like, this is another tool in the toolbox. Why are we ignoring it? <laughs> right. <laughs> you guys are all, you're talking about the land. You're, you're talking, you know, why don't you want to work with the land? Like why? Yeah, it just, again, it just, there was a disconnect. It just never made sense to me. Uh, and, you know, to the credit well, there's of... Also, there's also, you know, I think that we're confused about, you know, the mage, right? Like the wizard, people like Merlin, right? Who were of a certain class and privilege and they were advisors to the political elite, right? And um, and then there were the witches, right? Who have always been of the underclasses, yes. right? Um, Maybe, you know, and again, when we look at Gardner and Alexander, Alexander tradition, right, out of the UK, you know, those were also people who had a bit of privilege. You know, they were landowners. <laughs> they had titles, right? Um, but, Despite taking right. off all their clothes and, and worshiping nature, they were, they were pretty, pretty politically concerned and could be. And once they got over the one thing that was in their way, they're not being able to public, uh, practice uh, uh, practice publicly, uh, they just, you know, embrace their conservatism. No, not every, you know, not all Gardnerians, hashtag. Um, that, that tradition has since branched off in many, many, many different directions, some of them being fiercely leftist and queer and beautiful. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, but when you look at that original, those original groups, you know, the, the OG, so to speak, <laughs> Gardnerians, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. They were deeply politically conservative, you know. So, so are all of those... You know, again, I, 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 you know, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, yeah, you know, rich white men in robes groups that <laughs> Crowley, you know, all, you know, the Freemasons, all that stuff, all of that stuff. Though those were those were people with privilege that would never have associated themselves with, you know, so many other groups, especially when we're talking about, you know, being in Europe, you know, in Europe before this stuff traveled over to the U.S. Um, so many parallel groups of people that, you know, of, of traditions, of ideas, of practices that were happening and are still happening all over the continent um, mm-hmm. that, you know, were, were the peasants, were the real witches, were, you know, the, the village wise woman, that, you know, that really had absolutely nothing to do with the rich old men in robes. And, and yet somehow it got kind of, you know, when stuff came, kind of like, you know, I mean, when everything comes over to the U.S., I guess it get kind of loses its context and gets all muddled. Um, but I feel like that well, there was a whole lot. Well, it's a melting pot, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you yeah. know, when, when witchcraft as a whole came over to the U.S., I think both those things kind of came over, but but the context was lost and, and aspects of that were lost. And, you know, the dominant, mm-hmm. you know, the folks who were able to, you know, put their stakes down first were more the Gardnerian types, the conservative types. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so much of that other group, which, again, I would argue, you know, is actually much bigger and much more organic and actually has much more of a history. Um, the, 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 the fact that their existence is and was inherently political just seemed to get lost. But also the fact that their existence itself got lost. You know, one of the things that, that makes me want to pull out my hair every time I hear it, and if I did pull out my hair every time I hear it, I'd be bald because I hear it every day, is this whole idea, you know, 
Well, you can't say, you know, anyone who says that their great-great-great-grandmother is a witch is full of shit. And or, you know, there's no such real thing as hereditary witchcraft. And or my favorite one is, well, you know, it's okay if I culturally appropriate from this, 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 and this, because all the traditions of my ancestors were wiped out by the Christians. All three of those things are bullshit. All three of those things, anyone on the European continent would look at you and say, what the fuck are you talking about? But they're kind of accepted in the United States because there's been a break from the history. And people... I have a 27-year-old child who is my child, grew up with witchcraft in the house, witchcraft being taught in the house, practiced in the house, and is in training now, right? Um, After all of those years of being exposed, right, to these big energies, all of these people coming in and the house, in and out of the house, right? Um, and you bet that they can call themselves a hereditary witch. You know, like, of course they are. They're also trained, right? Like, they don't get to skate off on their, you know, my mom was so and so, right? They they also have to have the training that any witch. Well, not any witch, I guess, um, um, that some, witch, some of us choose to, to have so that we can get really good, really ethical, really clear about what we're doing. Um, you know, it's so interesting to me that, you know, we, do, we, we know those histories of, um, you know, the, the robed white men, right? Um, and certainly we can look at the magic of the village witches, right, and say, what was their magic for? It was for helping their community survive, right, under oppressive circumstances. And their magic was for, for healing, right? So healing, rites of passage, and political, right? Like, how do we get around this, you know, brutal landlord, right? I don't mean like a landlord who owns a building, but a landlord who literally owns the land that everybody for miles lives on, right? That um, word has how do we get? There's a reason historically yeah. why it's called the <laughs> landlord. <laughs> right, right. Um you know how do we how do we get around him and his men right his what we would call today police right who were there to police and keep the people who lived on the land in check yep so inherently political if you look at you know the the folkways that came over from africa right that magic is not all political right, because it came from a place where people weren't in the dire straits that they were here on this continent. But that, mag- that root work magic, right, that's, that's for survival, yep. right? That's to, like, get the person who's harassing you, who's coming for the money, who's dragging you off to court, right, off your back. And those are the magics that I fear aren't being um, passed on, you know? Mm-hmm. Like one of the reasons I started, to, I decided that I wanted to do these dark moon rituals of release is because everywhere I look in the internet world, right, 
is manifestation, manifestation, manifest, 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 you know, more, more money, the life you just, you know, the life I want, the thing I want, the whatever, the job I want, the salary I want, and that's all fine. But there's this other side of it, of letting go, right? That's ignored. And so I was talking with a friend of mine. She was asking me, she's a business friend, so she was like asking me a bunch of questions about, but why, but why, but why, right? So that I could get clear and talk about it. And I said the phrase energetic hoarding, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I want to bring all of this stuff in, and that's great, but if I'm trying to bring in new furniture to my house and I don't move the old couch out of the living room, I can't enjoy the new, the new couch because the old one is in the way, right? And it's just simple things like that that I feel like are getting lost in this sort of onslaught of online witchcraft, you know, because um, uh, people aren't really teaching. No, Some people are teaching. I should... They're hmm? selling, and it's a lot easier to sell manifestation than to sell letting go. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've never been a great businesswoman, right? <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know me. Um, because I'm a provocateur, right? Because I want to, like, look at, like, what's not happening here that needs to happen, right? Well, it's not happening because people are, like, that sounds uncomfortable, right. <laughs> you know. That's uncomfortable to think about. That's uncomfortable to to address, right? But that's part. That's just part of who I am, right? Is that provocateur? It's why you and I get along so well, because uh, we both we both have that part in us. But it's not just provoking for the sake of being provocative. It really is being provocative for the sake of education, right, mm-hmm. for the sake of trying to help people expand their worldview. Um, you know, the other piece of my work as the crone herself is really radical feminism, right? And I don't care that my feminism is second-wave feminism. I don't care. Second-wave feminism was awesome. The problem with second-wave feminism is that a lot of second-wave feminists didn't evolve, right? Right. And they became exclusive, right? Trans-exclusive radical feminists. And that's not what I am. I really want people who are like, oh, no, ew, second-wave feminists, it's so icky. And it's like, have you ever read the writers from that time? We're reinventing wheels that we don't have to reinvent um, because, that we don't have to reinvent. There are people have already talked about all the topics that are hot right now, and 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 done it really, really well. But we don't know about it because, again, we don't read history, right? right. And we don't want to go back thirty years um, to to what that generation was saying, thinking about, trying to solve, trying to resolve. Because some of them are turf. But don't read the turf, right? Don't promote the turfs. But, you know, anybody who's listening, please, like, go back and look at second wave writers because they were, 
their their minds were so far ahead of where we were as a people then that we the rest of us are just catching up now mm-hmm. to what they were writing and trying to address way back in the 80s and 90s. Anyway, in, in many ways, the world know. itself is just now catching up. I mean, I see a parallel between, you know, and they were part of the, the second wave movement, but I look at specifically like the Marxist feminists. I look at, like, you know, one thing that was super interesting to me being a part of Gods and Radicals, for example, was this huge resurgence five, six, seven years ago in the work of, of Sylvia Federici and the book Caliban and the Witch. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, one day I went online, and this is just what everyone's talking about. Now, the book itself isn't that old. Um, I don't remember. I'm, I want to say it was written, like, maybe in the first half of the 2000s, um, probably during the Bush years. But Federici's ideas and, and, and Federici's prime as a writer, like, her, her, her time, right? That was the early 1970s. <laughs> right. And... And in many ways, what that book did and, what, you know, and, and through that book, people found so much more of her work. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing like, you know, essays she wrote 40 years ago being republished and being quoted and look at this on Tumblr and what this and that and the other thing, you know, and I'm, I'm just, it kind of cracked me up. Because, again, these were, these were very, very old, I, old in terms of, you know, older than me. You know, these, these are not at all new ideas. But to a certain extent, her ideas were seen as too radical for their time in so many ways. Right. Um, in the early 1970s, right. you know, so much of what she wrote about, you know, the, the idea of the wages for housework movement, the idea that women are invisible laborers at home who are not being compensated, um, that, you know, living in the world today is actually much, much, much more relevant to a certain extent than it was in the 1970s, because at least in the 1970s, a family could live on one income. <laughs> Nowadays, not even that is possible. So I, I kind right. of feel like, you know, the, the inevitability of what happens, you know, what, what people like to call end-stage capitalism, but I just call capitalism. Uh, has we ca- I call it late. I call it late-stage capitalism because we are not at the end, but we are late, and, you know, it's and been I, a while. But, but, like, so many people use that phrase. It's like as, as though something all of a sudden went wrong, whereas, no, 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 this is, this is how it works. This is the inevitable conclusion to, to how such a system is designed. The reason we're seeing it more than ever now is because all the safeguards have been pulled away. Um, and so it's and, the middle, and the middle class is hurting. Right. Because the middle class isn't supposed to exist under capitalism. The middle class existed because it was created. You know, the middle, the, the American middle class. You know, there, there was this brief moment right after World War II where the U.S. and Europe kind of all saw the same picture, and so the middle class was created. But see, in Europe, there was this understanding that that holding on to that middle class is what's going to keep us from going over into fascism, and so you know, starting in the 70s and, and really much accelerated under Reagan, all of these safeguards and protections that created the middle class were yanked away. So now you have yeah. what you had 200 years ago. You have the rich and you have the poor, and there's nothing really in between. You could argue you have a, a, a bourgeois business class, but you don't have the middle class. Here we're seeing the start of the same thing. You know, we, we what so much of what's happening over here right now is this this – you know, when I talk to people about what I see happening in France, I always call it the Americanization of France. 
Macron is trying to do to France what Reagan did to the United States. And so much of that is destroying uh. the middle class. It's destroying the middle class to enrich the rich because he's a banker with a bunch of banker friends. And, you know, talk about, you know, when we talk about, again, learning from each other's histories, one of the reasons you see such a violent pushback on Macron's policies here in France is because the French know what that leads to. They sat here, they watched Thatcher, and they watched Reagan, and they had a front row seat to both shit shows. So they're like, uh-uh. Right. Like, we're not, we're, you cannot fool us with that shit. You fooled the Brits and the Americans, and now they are, are, are living the consequences, and so many people have been manipulated into supporting fascism because fascism breeds off of desperation. You are not going to put our country right. to that level of desperation where fascism will be embraced. And if you try to do it, we are going to, you know, burn down your city hall. <laughs> Back to that again. Um, yeah. But, but you know, so yeah. much so, I look at second wave feminism, I look at Marxist feminism, I look at so many of these, the, the, these ideas that in many ways are more relevant than ever because the times have caught up to it. They were ahead of their time. Now they're of their yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they were able to see whether you're talking about feminism in academia or the white or the... Um, the womanist movement, right, of women of color who were like, hey, we're not part of your movement. You're not including us. You're not listening to us. Our stories are not your stories. You're talking about business class stories, right, white women stories. And um, the, the womanist writers were able to bring a whole different perspective um, that I think is absolutely relevant to where the majority of people are today, right? I think, right? I think I'm always a little bit ahead of the curve as well. But, you know, when Trump was in office, you know, I started to hear people, not just you, right, saying things like, well, we're, we're all on the reservation now, right? We're all on the plantation now. We're all, in the, in the, we're all incarcerated now, right? And those seem like really radical statements. But what they're saying is we don't have any rights. <laughs> you know, we have this right to vote sometimes depending upon where you live, what state you're in, how much money you have, can you get to the voting thing, can you provide the kind of documentation that they require. I still can't believe, like, I live in a state where I, can, I walk in and I verbally tell them my address and my name, and they check off my name, they don't ask me for an ID, and I go, to the, and, I go and vote, you know? Um, and there's no line because we're organized about how we do it. For the brief time that I lived in Florida, um, I, I couldn't believe what I saw down there. Getting registered to vote was like this whole ordeal, right? And then going to vote, I just avoided it. I did mail-in, and somehow that wasn't a problem eight years ago, seven years ago. It wasn't a problem to, like, do I'm going to do a mail-in ballot because I did not want to wind up someplace and have them tell me I was in the wrong place, mm -hmm. right? I didn't want to wind up someplace like my friend Amy wound up. All, their, all of their voting places are inside churches, 
right? Well, what we were talking about before, right? Church state separation. Right. I mean, I've I've never seen a voting place inside of a church. So all of our voting places in Massachusetts are up are in city halls. They're in public schools, right? They're on state-owned properties, not in churches. So you go into the church, and Amy says, "There's no voting booth. There's no curtain." People, there's no pencils to fill out the ballot. So you're waiting for someone to hand you a pencil. People are filling out ballots on the walls, on one another's backs. In a church. Yep. In a church in Florida. Yep. You know? What? And I'm, I'm like, well, no wonder people are worried about the vote being not counted right. Well, and also, how, does that, how does that influence your vote? How does voting, I mean, you think about, you know, just, just you know, the, the stereotyped Catholic guilt, but even beyond that, the degree to which, which what is set up behind the pulpit is, is so, so, so deeply political, more so than ever. How can walking into a church, even if it's not your church, if it's the church that holds political power in your area, how is walking into that church, how is being surrounded by those people not going to influence your vote? Um, and those yeah. people can see your ballot. Exactly. They know who you're voting for and how are they going to respond to it and how is your, your history in the community from that point on going to be affected by that. The, the, the degree of, of psychological manipulation and peer pressure that goes on just, just due to the fact that, that you're in a small town voting in a church is enormous. And frankly, it's something that, I, I mean, one of the – I can remember like the first few months that I was here in France, you know, one of – and. You know, I American exceptionalism is kind of it's kind of like racism, where you you are you you can say to yourself, "I'm not that," but you have internalized so much of it, and you are weeding it absolutely. out. Absolutely. And yep, I will never absolutely. forget talking to someone here about church and state separation, and you know, and I remember you know I was I was arguing like, don't get me wrong, you know. In France, it's stronger. Yes, I recognize that. But, you know, we, we do a decent job. And, and, and the other person just laughed at me. He was like, you vote in churches. I was, I was like, how can you say you have church-state separation if your fucking voting booth is in a church? And I just, you know, I just had to stop and just really chew on that. Because me coming from the Northeast, you know, I, we didn't vote in churches either. But, but the church doesn't have the kind of grip on places where you and I grew up, as it does in so much of the country. So, you know, I, I can't does, really... Where, where I grew up, the Catholic Church was really in, in charge. I mean, I grew up in western Massachusetts um, in huge populations, waves of Catholic immigrants, right, from Ireland, from Poland, from Italy, um, and, from Puerto, and from Puerto Rico, right? Huge. So there was every district in a city had its, had its own Catholic church and its own Catholic school. But I would still argue that's still not the same as small town America, where you have no. a rural town of a couple hundred people <laughs> and the church, right? It's right, and the first power. thing that anyone asks you is, what church do you belong to? Exactly, and that's, that's what I'm talking that that I started thinking about when this person said that to me, and just what that means to go in and vote in that church. I mean, you're right that institutionally the Catholic Church holds power in much of, of the Northeast, 
uh, much of the West yep. Coast as well. But there's a certain kind of the degree to which the church is the community, and and you know, and you don't have that mixing. You don't have immigrants from tons. You, know, you don't have other kinds of communities, right? Where you grew up, right. where I grew up, you, know, you could be Irish, and you could be Catholic, and you could be Italian, you could be Catholic, and the, the, there's crossover there. But you're Irish or Italian, separate from just being Catholic. That's not the way rural America is. You're in this town. You go to this church, and that's that's it. So how yeah. do you vote against that in that? Right. There's no church-state separation. <laughs> it's a joke. I mean, right. it's always been. Now it's, now it's you know, the, the, again, the emperor's got no clothes. Now we see how much of a joke it is because it's infected all the way up to the Supreme Court. But it was always yeah. a joke to an extent. Just, again, the very fact that we vote in churches, and that's allowed. And the very fact that voting, like so much in the United States, is organized on a local level. Of, I mean, how, how can that not lead to the inevitable corruption that you have? Again, what you explained, the difference between Florida and Massachusetts. Here, no matter where you vote, it is always exactly, exactly, exactly the same. You get a thing in the yeah. mail. You have a specific spot. You go to the specific spot. It's a specific day. It's a Sunday because very few people work on a Sunday. There's usually not a line. And yes, you have to show an ID, but see, here an ID is a national thing that everybody has and that they don't deny right. you because you don't have a birth certificate because you were born to a midwife in a small Texas town or whatever the fuck goes on all over the U.S. that causes people to not be able to get an identification. You know, everything right. is centralized. So voting is the same right. everywhere. And where you live does not determine your access to the ballot box. And that makes right. all the difference in the world. Well, you know, the, the piece about American exceptionalism, excuse me, American exceptionalism, the connecting with the piece about racism, connects with the piece about feminism, right, and all the ways that we have been indoctrinated into what we think is okay, you know, who we think we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to behave in any given circumstances, um, you know, whether we're allowed to say no, whether we're allowed to wear what we want, right? So we're talking about, like, politics on this grand scale, but just for the sake of big crone energy, I want to just reel it back, and also we're like at an hour and a half here. Um, <laughs> of course we are, so we might have to make this into two, you know, like a, a series. Um, but all of these ideas that Ali and I have been talking about, you know, they're internalized. They're deeply, deeply internalized, right? American exceptionalism, you know, what it means to be a woman in this culture, right? Whether... And I mean all women, all women, everyone who calls themselves a woman, I'm including, right? The, the ways that we are indoctrinated into everything that we do, all the choices that we make, all the things that we think are our choices, right? Well, I love to wear full face makeup. Why? Why? Why do you love that, right? If that's really what you love, like really what you love, and that means unraveling, right, 
all of the indoctrination into I really love it because I can finally, with all of this makeup, approximate what women are told we're supposed to look like. Right? I want women to do whatever we want to do. If you want to wear a full face of makeup, wear it. But I also want us to interrogate ourselves (laughs) around, you know, what do I think, you know, why do I think that? Why do I believe that? You know, why are we so worried about becoming crones, right? Mm -hmm. And And how does that show up from, you know, the fabulous, 90-year-old, 108-year-old fashionistas, right? And I think, my God, do we ever get a break where we don't have to get all dressed up like that, <laughs> right? Where we don't have to wear, I mean, poor Iris Apple. I love her for what she's doing. I love that she's making money. I love that her face is everywhere. She's got so much jewelry on, she can't stand up, right. you know, because the fashion houses are trying to sell everything that they sell on this little old lady who she, she could just sit in a chair <laughs> and look adorable, right? Um, so all of this stuff that we're talking about that, you know, sort of like pulling the threads apart, right, and looking at like what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath, and how do we as citizens of this world, right, whether it's in France or the United States or in Italy or Germany or South Africa or wherever you're listening from, how is the culture that you're living in and the political situation that you're living in impacting your day-to-day choices that you think are private choices, right? One of the things I'm trying to do in the crown herself is to help women to unravel some of this stuff that we're blaming on childhood trauma, right? And some of it is childhood trauma. I'm not debating that. So deal with your childhood trauma, but also understand that some of that trauma was being indoctrinated away from our natural state, right? Our natural ways of choosing, living, being in this world, right? And it's our parents who did that to us. It's our earliest teachers who did that to us, right? So there's, yes, there's trauma work to be done, but there's also, um, I think, um, um, a rejection of the indoctrination if we want to be free, if we want to be free. And it's scary, you know? That's scary, scary work. It's as scary as, you know, um, going, going to someone who knows better, who's lived it, right, to teach you about your racism, mm-hmm. right? So that white, so that we white women and white men, I've seen a lot of white women doing this work. I don't know a lot of white men who are doing this work. Um, you know, unraveling, you know, the ideas of our supremacy, right? And I think we have to do the same thing with gender. And we have to do the same thing around class, right, and money. Um, and hmm? you know it, it's going back to what you were saying about trauma I think you know the thing about trauma is it's you know it, it's like that extreme that it, one promote extreme to another right generationally in the past the 
idea that people could even be holding trauma was just so denied. It was so shut out. You know, I look at I look at the World War II generation. You look, you know, you can't imagine the kind of trauma that both parties held, that everybody held, and that you know, and, and that was the, maybe they called them the silent generation, right? Because there was a pride right. in not showing it at all. I feel in many ways we've done like we've gone completely on the other side now. Well, yes, trauma is a huge issue, but I feel like kind of what you were just saying, it's easier to find a complex and, and just chalk it up to trauma as opposed to look at it being a product of a more subtle kind of indoctrination that, you know, was forced upon you. But then actually in many ways we are, we are still actively participating in. Um, you know, I'll give an interesting example here being an American living in France, right? There's a lot of stereotypes about, French people and French women, and most of them, I would say, are bullshit. And to me, I, I've found sometimes the ones that are actually that strike me the most are not not the ones that were drilled into my head. You know, like I remember hearing, you know, French women never shave. Well, actually, most French women do shave. Um, one thing that though many French women, many more French women, do not do and do not bother with and do not care about um, is wearing a bra in the summertime. Wearing a tank top without a bra is extremely common and extremely accepted and not limited to women who are in A cup or a double A cup, which I find, you know, right. in the U.S. when it is accepted, it's usually accepted for, for very thin androgynous women, and that's it. Right. And it's been really interesting. Now, me, you know, I'm not prudish at all. I try very hard not to hold women to beauty standards. I myself don't like wearing a bra at all. Um, I also personally find myself unable to not wear a bra in public. The way that so many people I know and love who I consider my peers do. And it has everything to do with indoctrination. And it's fascinating to me because it's not coming from a place of childhood trauma. It's not coming from a place of religion. And me being a person that has always rejected so many feminist duty stand, you know, I've never owned a piece of jewelry in my entire life. <laughs> I, I look at how much I have rejected so much of what being a woman means. And yet I find myself, again, on my seventh summer here, still doing a double take constantly when a woman walks past me not wearing a bra. Again, not a judgment, but just a, oh, yeah, that's okay here. Oh, right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And you continue on. Um, and then finding just, you know, the one time I tried it being so uncomfortable that I just, like, I just, it just, it, it's not worth, frankly, I'm finding it traumatizing to try to do it myself because I've just got all this stuff around indoctrination and I know none of it is logical. And again, it's not, it's not my parents. It's not the church. It's not. I mean, I've never worked in it's the, the air. World, it's the know? air we're breathing. It, it, it's the air we're you grew up breathing. It's the water that we're all swimming in. Exactly. And I look at how much I have been the, you know, I've never owned office clothing. I've never sat in a bureau. I've never done so many of the things. I've never been a parent. I've never gone to a PTA meeting. I've never done so many of the things that I assumed to myself would be part of that indoctrination that would put that I that would, would would create such a strong resistance in me and yet there's still such a strong resistance in me and it has everything to do with again the air I breathe even growing up in like 
the most arguably liberal progressive part of the United States. It is still so deeply entrenched in me that I will still always do a double take. And I still, even when it's the most horrifying fucking heat wave, I can't bring myself to do it myself. Despite having, I mean, I was an art model. I don't have issues around nudity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I used to get paid to sit there and let college kids draw my boobs. Why can I not go out in a tank top without a bra? There is no logic here. And yet I can't right. do it because of my indoctrination. And I just, I find it fast. And, find you, and frankly, I also don't care enough at this moment to do the level of work I would need to do to get there. It's just not on my priority list, you know? I just find it fascinating right. because it is such a specific little thing that I never would have thought would be coming up over and over again. It really just took me by surprise both the fact that it's so prominent here, because again, that wasn't amongst the gazillion French stereotypes that were fed to me as an American. And, but just also the degree to which like, it's just constantly surprises me like, Oh, Oh, Oh oh, yeah, you can do that. Right. It just like, it just doesn't stop. And I just find it just, just, just a fascinating little like crick in my personal system that again, you know, it's not where I'm going to, to devote my energy um, right. But nonetheless, in terms of the power of indoctrination, despite all of the, again, exceptions I can make for myself, it's just absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a gajillion of those, right? And we're talking about bras and makeup, but, you know, it's also heels, right? Mm-hmm. It's also, and it's also, you know, yes, still doing more than 50% of the housework, right? Mm-hmm. I've worked with women who, you know, I work with them for two years, three years, five years, and they they can't claim the corner of a bookshelf or a dresser to put a candle on in their own home, right? And I think, what's going on in your house, right? And it's not, but like the husband isn't abusive. This is the woman who's like, that. I I can't claim that space for me, right? And I, I just, you know, I'm not good at being married, right? <laughs> or I should say, I would probably have been really good at being married had I had a better picker. Because um, I, I like the idea. I still like the idea of marriage. Um, but the idea of not being able to put something where I want it and say, please, that's my space mm-hmm. um, in my own home is just, it's astounding to me. It's yeah. appalling no, to me. That's inconceivable right? to me. Frankly, I'm the opposite. You know, I have a husband and a housemate, and both of them make it clear from time and time again that my stuff takes up way too, you know, it's, it's them who feel the need to claim space sometimes. And, I'm, you know, I work on it. I, but it's funny because I realize how against the, you know, that's one where I'm completely, I mean, look behind me. See, you're shut. Like, this is, this is all me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> person household. But all yep. of the corners I've pretty, and I have to like go out of my way to remember that I need to relinquish space to other people or at least, you know, leave neutral spaces where it doesn't feel like anybody's space. But I realize just how different my lived reality is from exactly what you're saying because I know all those women too. I've been in their houses, you know, I've, they're, they, they're my friends, you know. Well, they're usually not my friends here now, but like, you know, I've interacted with them throughout yep. my life. 
and yeah yeah and and the the home is the home is for everyone and you're the keeper of the home and i just i can't yeah i i that that's one that always stumps me that always stumps me um and to me it feels like an extension of the idea that women you know are not supposed to take up space right mm-hmm. We're supposed to be um, small in our chairs, right? We're supposed, like if you look at how men sit and how women sit, um, even in public spaces, right? Like who who is taking up the whole chair, right? Even I'm sitting here in my own big office chair, big, right? Roomy, like I can put my legs up and 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 yet when I talk to certain people over the internet or I'm having a, a call on my chair, I realize like, oh, I'm sitting all small, <laughs> right? I'm not letting my body relax into the space that I have. And there's nobody here telling me how I should be sitting, nice. right? How much space I'm allowed to take up. So the idea of, you know, be small, cross your legs, hold yourself in a, in a sort of closed position, right? I think that that extends into our, our living or can extend into our living environments. It doesn't for everyone, um, certainly. Um, I have this great story of uh, a, a person that you and I both know and are close with. I won't name them because I don't have permission here, but they were doing some work around taking up space, right, mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of being bigger. And they were kind of working with... Um, uh, one of the witches from Terry Pratchett's books, Granny Weatherwax, you know, who, okay. whose idea was, you know, I, I'm, I should be this, I'm the scariest person, I'm the scariest thing in the forest. And so this person was sort of working with that, that idea of like, what would that feel like to know that, like, you're the most powerful person in the room, right? Um, and so they were sort of practicing that, right, um, as part of, the work that I was doing with them. And they got on a train and there was this guy sitting there and he was all splayed out, right? And there was no place except for next to him on the train to sit. And, you know, those of you who are listening, you can't see this, but I'm making a a gesture of like shutting with my hands, right? Like almost bringing my hands together to clap. And she just looked at this guy and made that gesture and he snapped his legs closed. and made space for her to sit down. And she said, and then I sat down and took up all the room I could. And, of course, she's no bigger than you are, right? Um, She's not a big, big person, um, but, like, took up all the room that she wanted to in that chair. Um, And so this is a thing that we notice, right? Like man-spreading and man-splaining and how challenging it is for us to accept it, but it's even more challenging to us to um, confront it, right, and to say, yeah. Um, Anyways, we are like an hour and 45 minutes in, so we're going to wrap up this conversation. Allie and I I often, I think that when I saw you last, you were talking to me, it was like at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was sliding down 
into like, a horizontal. Sleep, Karina. I'm going to let you be now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but we could talk that long, and, and you all would be entertained by it. Um, Allie, it's been great having you on. Um, I hope you'll come back another time um, and do this again, and we can talk about the state of the world and the state of all of the, all all the, of the things. things. Before we started here, because I don't think we actually got to almost any of those. But you know, that's that's how it happened. It's fine. It's I'm just laughing because, yeah, you had a list and I, we didn't touch most of it, but it's okay. We'll do it again. That's okay. You know, I totally trust that what needed to be said was said. Yeah. Um, was and again, I think it gives my it gives the listeners of the Big Crone Energy podcast um, another. Uh, peek another view into what you're getting yourself into if you decide to work with me. Because <laughs> um, it's a lot, right? Um, it's as big or as, as um, it's as broad or as, as small and narrow as you need it to be. I think I like to remind people that, you know, a lot of times people will come to me and they'll have like a thread that they want to I want to work on this thing. And then we start pulling on that thread, and then a thread over here starts to get loose, right? And then that loosens something else at the bottom and something behind. And pretty soon, you know, we literally have a pile of thread on the, on the floor. And, and that can sound, I know that that can sound really scary, but I also want to tell people it's super exciting when you can take that unraveled mess and start making what you really, really, really consciously want to put in your life. Um, yeah, so I think Allie is a, one of the reasons I wanted Allie on the show is because I've seen Allie do that in her life, right? All the way to being like, I'm leaving the country because... I need to I need to take all of these threads and put them together in such a way that will make me really happy and really healthy. And the alley I know now is really happy <laughs> and really healthy. You know, when I when I see you in person, I it's almost like I can't stop staring at you for the first two hours because I'm trying to get to know you again, right? The shape of your face is different. The way you move through the world is different. Um, and, and the stress of being impoverished in the United States, right, um, is gone, right? It's, it's huge, right? Having access to health care and healthy food um, and a safety net that actually helps you get what you need to live and be healthy is huge. Um, the, so the most ironic part of that, and I just want to put this out there so people understand, I am making less money right now than I ever have in my entire life. In terms of just money, in terms of just what's in the bank, I am more impoverished than I have been since I was 18. No, even when I was 18 years old, I was making, and yet, it's having those structures around you. It's having a social safety net. It's having not, and it, it, it's being somewhere where the cost of everything is not so horrifically inflated that nobody can afford mm-hmm. to live. 
and, and, and being somewhere where there's a cultural value that's determined not to let that happen. That's what makes all the difference in the world. I, I am so cash poor. I kind of just, you know, it's a constant lull sob. You know, I don't even know what to think sometimes. I'm like, I have absolutely no money. But the fact that if I, if I fall and twist my ankle, I can immediately go to a doctor and don't have to fret about that at all. It, it makes all the difference in the world and frankly is something that should not be, and well, frankly, something you know, isn't unique. It's something that most of the rest of the world, even the developed world, even the global south, even what we call most of the third world, something that people don't worry about. That's a uniquely American thing. And that's something else that we have all just normalized. Even middle class people have normalized. Even people with theoretically good health care have normalized. Because even your theoretically good health care, what if you go to the wrong hospital? What if you end up with the wrong doctor? What if the medical billing person makes a mistake? What if the insurance company rejects your claim? Medical mm -hmm. billing doesn't exist here as a profession. There's no insurance claims department. When your doctor says you need something, you get it, and there's no middleman to stay in the way, and that's the way wow. the world is outside of the U.S., and I'm just putting that out there, not, not to, like, brag, but just to make a point because I think people need to hear it over and over and over again because they know on one level, but there's just so much, A, that's normalized, and B, there's just also so much disinformation about, well, you know, you have to wait three years to see a doctor in England. Just, just stop. There are better Look, ways. Look, if I want to find a new doctor here, it's going to take me six or eight months to find a doctor and get in to see them. And that's in a place that is, you know, solidly, um, not where I live up here in the hill towns, right? But I'm talking about in the valley where there's five colleges and it's pretty solidly, you know, middle class. Um, there, there, there is no doctor available for a new. There's nobody taking a new patient. So, if I want to change doctors because my insurance changed and no longer covers my doctor that I'm currently seeing. I, I'm out of a doctor, right? So this idea of like you have to wait three years to see a doctor, that's not true. Or even three months to see a doctor is not true. Um, but it, it is true here, right? It is true here. Um, and again, I live in a, in a pretty privileged part of the, of the United States um, that was, that was comparatively. That was me needing six months to see a specialist with, you know, state insurance, but a really good, you know, my state insurance covered just as much as people I knew who had private insurance. I'm living in Portland, which is a pretty, you know, prosperous city. And I needed, they, they, they gave me a six-month wait. Yep. 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 All right, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Big Crone Energy podcast. Um, you can find us on all places where podcasts stream. Um, please do take a look at thecroneherself.com and uh, the Crones Marketplace because we've got all kinds of really cool stuff coming in starting, this is July 12th or something. Um, so by the 20th, everything should be online, in stock, and ready to ship out from brand new vendors. 
Um, yeah, and, and do my, do do check out. Yeah. Um, so look for Allie's stuff at the end of August because Allie's stuff will be different. I have to photograph it all. Some of the stuff is already photographed for me, so um, that makes a difference. Um, and I hope I'll see you at the Dark Moon Rituals of Release so that you can make some room for what it is that you really want. Talk to you next time. Take very good care of yourself. Mm-hmm.